evening, TDN Radio listeners. It is Wednesday, May 14th, 2014, and welcome to this week in interview. I am your host, Anthony Drago, and we've got an exciting and informative show for you tonight. Tonight's discussion is going to be centered on the life of Dame Eugenia Charles. Dame uh, Eugenia Charles was born... Uh, on May 15th, and, and so this would have been the week of her birthday, May 15th, and um, I, we thought that it would be very fitting to recognize and, and have a show about uh, the Dame, Dame Eugenia Charles, her time in office, her life, her contribution to, to Dominica, her contribution to the Caribbean. And so, uh, this is where we're going to be focusing on tonight's show, is the, the life and time of David Junior Charles, former prime minister and um, lawyer from, from, from Dominica. If uh, you're one of our many loyal listeners, we're very excited, as always, to have you on board. Welcome back. If this is your first time that you're joining us, we hope that you have an enjoyable time, and you too will become a regular listener. We do this week an interview every Wednesday night from 8 p.m., one hour, and we have guests um, that we interview, and um, we, we try to bring you topics of interest that uh, will stimulate uh, discussion, stimulate your thoughts, and ho hopefully... Uh, motivate you to take in some action. So welcome to this week in interview and um, we'll be right back. Let's, let's take a pause. You know, there are many choices when it comes to domain registration, web hosting, and dedicated servers. But I have to tell you about Jocko Hosting. They're simply the best. With their 99.9% .9 uptime guarantee, 24-7 sales and support teams, you'll never have to worry. Get in touch with them today. They offer plenty of other products and services like SSL certificates, managed WordPress, and more. Call or click today, 480-624-2500. Jocko.com. That's J-A-C-H-Q-O.com. back, listeners. Uh, as I said before the break, this is May 14, 2014. Tomorrow uh, would have been the birthday of Dame Eugenia Charles. She was born on May 15th, 1919. Uh, so tonight we decided to play tribute to her memory. And um, our discussion tonight is going to be centered, uh, around, um, centered on the book by um, Gabriel Christian. Um, Gabriel Christian wrote a book which um, he entitled Mamo. And we know that Mamo is the, is the, the term of endearment, um, the name that her many fans uh, referred to her and, and the, the way that they felt protected, almost as if she took care of the country like she was a mother. Um, so they call her Mamo. And if you go to Dominic and you say Mamo, there's only one person, well, except some people who call their grandmothers Mamo, but mostly in a, in a public setting, you say Mamo automatically. Um, Eugenia Charles comes to mind. So Gabriel Christian has a book entitled Mamo, The Life and Times of Dame Mary Eugenia Charles. And in there, he, um, 
he has an introduction by um, Judge Irvin W. Andre. So a lot of the discussion will be centered around that book. The book is actually mostly a, a transcription of a transcription of an interview or a series of interviews that Gabriel Christian did with Miss Charles uh, while she she stayed at his house on one of her many visits to to Washington D.C. And as a matter of fact, we will have the author of the book, Gabriel Christian, joining us on the phone. Also, um, we are hoping that um, to have some persons who interacted with Miss Charles while she was in office, either as part of her party, the Dominica Freedom Party, I also interacted with her while she was Prime Minister. Uh, we were expecting all, a call from um, Mr. Alvin Thomas, who was at the time uh, the general secretary, part of the time that she was prime minister, he was general secretary of the Civil Service Association, which is a union representing public workers. So he would have been involved in negotiating um, salary increases and, and, and benefits. So it would be interesting to get that perspective. So we, I think we have a pretty decent and informative, exciting show for you tonight. The world first took notice of their Mary Eugenia Charles, the Caribbean's first woman prime minister, when she stood shoulder to shoulder with President Reagan in the White House in 1983 as, heads, as head of the tiny island of Dominica and the chairman of the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, Miss Charles, who died at the age of 86, had invited the U.S. to invade neighboring Grenada after an internal power struggle ended in the murder of Prime Minister Maurice Bishop. While U.S. Marines crushed resistance in Grenada, Charles appeared on television with U.S. President Ronald Reagan. For Caribbean radicals, Miss Charles's performance was a betrayal and a further invitation to the U.S. to strut around in his backyard. But when Mamo, as she was known, returned home, Dominicans cheered her, and the region now had its own Iron Lady. She was Miss Charles was born in, in the village of Point Michel, a fishing village just outside of the capital of Dominica, Roseau. Her parents were from humble farming backgrounds. But her father, who had great influence on her, was a mason. He was known as J.B., J.B. Charles, and he lived to be 107 years old. He became relatively well-off, wealthy. Um, he acquired much land, and he owned various businesses, import, exports, and he was also a banker. He, he is credited to have been involved in the starting of what is called the um, Penny Bank, which is, I think was a precursor to the cooperative credit union movement. Uh, at the time, um, like most of the other British colonies, the, the society was very stratified based on class and shades of color. So Miss Charles's um, family would have fitted um, in the into the color, what is what would have been referred to at the time as colored bourgeoisie. Um, Dominica at the time was very religious, very God fearing, and um, and those qualities uh, would have been seen 
in Miss Charles and the way she carried herself in office and the way she executed and her stance, her policies, her principles, um, that God-fearing quality would, would manifest itself um, very strongly. Uh, her political career was still nearly 20 years off, although she was sometimes dismissively accused of neocolonial mentality. Um, that's when she went to, to, she came back from studying law in 1950. She, she was drawn into politics in the 1960s to counter what she saw as the dangerous activities of the ruling party. By this time, Dominica was self-governing, achieving independence in 1978. See, Governor Leighton was planning what became known as the Shut Your Mouth Bill to silence criticism and outlaw the opposition. In 1968, with broad political support, she helped form the Dominica Freedom Party, and she entered the House of Assembly as a nominated member after the 1970 election. She became a parliamentary representative for the Dominica Freedom Party in 1975 and spent the 1970s in opposition, using her legal training to good effect in Parliament, where she weathered the personal attacks, the mepui, as you would say in Dominica, with much dignity, often calling the ruling party's bluff. When a dress code act was introduced by Prime Minister Patrick John. Charles attended Parliament in a bathing costume to draw attention to the government's absurd posturing. An isolated woman in politics, she faced up heroically to opponents who abused her because she was unmarried and childless. Despite this, she never really identified with feminist issues or gave Caribbean women who carry many burdens particular consideration. The DFP's first electoral victory was in 1980 when she swept the board and brought her premiership. Her steadfastness and probity came as a welcome relief to an island that had been thrown into turmoil, both by political excess and corruption and by the ravages of Hurricane David in 1979. Her years in power found a swing to conservatism among Caribbean politicians with whom she found common calling. She was a leading proponent of the Caribbean unity, which made faltering progress during the 1990s. Internationally, too, her reputation was high. Politicians and officials found her manner refreshingly forthright. What she said in her deep bass voice was always to the point. She was an effective lobbyist, trawling the group for aid to sustain Dominica's banana-dependent economy. Thanks to her hard work, impoverished Dominica had the best roads in the English-speaking Caribbean and living standards improved. But as her rule went into its second decade, she lost some favor at home. Uh, she scraped by in her third term with only a one-seat majority. Her fearlessness, a much-needed quality in the difficult days, turned into a certain arrogance in the opinion of some persons, um, in more peaceful time, and a refusal to listen to grassroots. Now, Miss Charles is well known and well um, honored and recognized throughout the, um, not just Dominica, throughout the Caribbean. Um, I wanted to read a little bit from the book 
by Gabriel Christian um, Mamu, entitled Mamu, Life and Times of Dame Eugenia Charles. And, and Mr. Christian will be joining us on the phone um, shortly. We're expecting him to call in. But there's an introduction in the book by, by Irvin Andre. Irvin Andre is also um, part of the legal profession as um, Gabriel Christian. And in the introduction, Mr. Andre says, the numerous awards and commendations bestowed upon Dame Eugenia Charles attest to the unparalleled reverence and respect with which she is held. The countless references to her and the work that she had done continue to amaze and excite the imagination of many. She is listed by Guida Mer Jackson Lofa in her book, Women Rulers Throughout the Ages, among the likes of Catherine of Aragon, Golda Meir, Elizabeth I, and Margaret Thatcher. Charles Gulata's 1999 book, Extraordinary Women in Politics, locates Charles among a veritable pantheon of historical leaders such as Cleopatra VII, Queen of Egypt, Mary, Queen of Scots, Isabella, the first queen of a unified Spain, and Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia. Closer to home, the University of the West Indies professor Eudin Barito and Alan Cobley, in 2006 book entitled Enjoying Power, Eugenia Charles and Political Leadership in the Commonwealth of Caribbean, contains a number of scholarly essays on Miss Charles's leadership. In 1993, Janet Higby's Eugenia, Janet Higby's Eugenia, uh, the Caribbean's Iron Lady, chronicled Charles's life from relative obscurity to international notoriety following the 1983 U.S. invasion of Grenada. Charles was included among a distinguished list of 20th century African leaders when she was honored by the British government with the title Dame, Commander of the Order of the British Empire. She also received the Caribbean community's highest award, the Order of the Caribbean Community. She received an honorary fellowship from no less an institution than the London School of Economics. In 1997, she launched a women's institute at Kentucky School of Government at Harvard University. She was also the recipient of 12 honorary doctorate degrees, including one from the University of the West Indies and from Iona College in New York. She was elected president of the International Federation of Women Lawyers in 1991. Enjoying her cachet as a world leader par excellence, Charles helped mediate the political conflict in Haiti and courted by world audiences for her insight into women's and world affairs. And Mr. Andre continues to say, after, after he read all of those accomplishments and accolades, he brings it into perspective, which really um, highlights the achievement of this lady. He says... I remind myself that the dame's theater of activity measured a mere 29 miles long by 16 miles wide. Those of you who are from Dominica would know that that is the length and breadth of Dominica, 29 miles long, 16 miles wide. So he's making the point that she was able to achieve all that 
and she was not the leader of some great economy or some great power. She was simply the Prime Minister of Dominica. He says, I remind myself that her domain is peopled by no more than 70,000, and that her stage was set in the soft underbelly of a world power whose influence extended beyond its shores. I remind myself that Charles Spectred Isle possessed a majesty of its own in the verdancy of its mountains, the very tagged, very tagged richness of its vegetation, the virginity of its valleys, and the vigor of its people. I also remind myself that Charles did not achieve this near mythic reverence within a period of great historical upheaval, such as the growth of European expansion, the rise of European capitalism, the birth of a nation of biblical proportion of the struggle to achieve national liberation. Charles's glory years had not been nurtured within a period of great transformation. So, this is, those are the many um, accolades. This is a very interesting um, introduction by um, Irving Andre, who um, really documents the um, really documents the, the the achievements of Miss Charles. Uh, the Andre is a judge, a PhD in law, and co-founder of. Um, the, he has his own publishing company. So, by any stretch of the imagination, whether you admired or or you 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 did not admire her politics, there is no one who can really dispute the. Um, there's no one who can dispute the achievements of of this great Caribbean leader. I I found a little excerpt, um, uh, some interview that she did, and I, and I sort of collated it and put some of them together. I would I I would like to take the opportunity now to play some of that, so you can get a, a get a flavor, a feel for for the type of lady. This was done after she had left office, and she was going around as this. Um, Dignitary, she was Dame Eugenia Charles, and she was invited all over the world, and she was championing the cause of Dominica. And back at home, she was facing some tough questions from journalists. Let's listen. Fair share of criticism. In and out of public life, Dame Eugenia remains a prominent figure. Miss Charles, welcome to Under Fire. More as a fighter than as a healer. What do you think about that? Well, in Dominica, you have to be a fighter, otherwise you wouldn't get anywhere. There are things you heal too, but certainly. It was, it was important to be able to go out and get the things that Dominica required. I remember the time we came in. It came after the two hurricanes, the Hurricane Labour and the Hurricane David. And so there were, it was a difficult time and you had to fight. And you had to fight with donors to get the things you required for your country because you didn't have all the money yourself. If we can ask you a few political questions now. In the 70s, while sitting on the opposition benches, you got a lot of flack, a lot of insults from people like Vic Revere, Patrick John. Have you been able to forgive them? Oh yes, I did. I never, I never held any grudge against them. I knew they were being stupid. I knew it was the ignorance that was making them behave that way. And you know, I didn't sit silently by and I gave as good as I got. I was able to respond. I suppose I prevented me to having any build up of, of 
you know, for disliking me. But did all political you? parties get involved in campaigning to try to win? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about campaigning and buying. I'm talking about giving people gifts at the time, having starved them for five years, giving them gifts to well, make you, them you, better off. You've never done it yourself, Mr. Charles. Mm -hmm. But, but I, when, when I, I go to the house, I didn't even carry money with me. What do you mean by giving gifts? Because, I mean, if, if when the election is coming is when a lot of programs are put on track, in, in a way, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, they, they obviously, they, they, they've... So that was, that was just a little taste <laughs> to give you a flavor of the forthrightness with which Miss Charles conducted herself. And she didn't shy away from saying that um, some of these guys, that, and the things that they were saying was plain stupid, <laughs> you know? Um, never one to, to sugarcoat um, what she wanted to say. I think that was one of her most admired qualities that she was very forthright. I hope we may come back to some more of that clip. Um, there's some other interesting things on there. But on the, on the line, um, very excited and delighted to announce that um, we have with us on the phone the offer of the book that, that we've been um, hearing a little bit of excerpts from. Uh, Mr. Gabriel Christian is, has been kind enough to honor us um, with some of his time. And um, we want to give him uh, a welcome to this week in interview. Um, he, he's a brother, so I, I call him Gabu, but Mr. Christian, uh, welcome to this week in interview. And we're so happy that you're able to join us as we discuss the esteemed, most esteemed um, life and achievement of the uh, Mary New Junior Charles. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Drago or, or Tony. Um, uh, I'm very pleased to be on the Dominican.net radio and uh, to give credit to Payne and the work he's done over all these years to record our history on the Dominican.net, and I, I'm happy to have been associated with them throughout that process and still. <clears throat> and I'm thankful that you've taken up that mantle, uh, Tony, uh, to uh, bring to our listening audience the important facets of our history, our heritage, and not least of all the history as it pertains to the Right Honorable Dame House, someone with whom I had much disagreement as a young political activist on the uh, side of the Labour Party and the political left in Dominica, someone who we considered a very conservative and maybe reactionary person, but who over 13, 14 years of development work with the Dominican community in Washington and working with her, which you would visit, I gained a tremendous amount of respect for her modesty, her thrift, her sense of industry, her sense of self-respect, her sense of decency, even where we may have had ideological differences. And so, uh, you know, over those years, to observe her uh, from up close when she would visit and maybe we would work on different projects for the hospital or for the libraries or with regard to promoting Dominica, I saw someone who uh, had earned the respect of her peers in the Caribbean uh, community, uh, the respect of the U.S. <clears throat> government and congressional members of Congress who she'd worked with, but someone who really, when she spoke with me in 96 and told me about her life, and what later became MAMO, the book MAMO, The Life and Times of Dame Mary Junior Charles, uh, published by Pont Cassie Press, which was started by myself and Irving Andre back in 92. What was really amazing was the story, indeed, of her father. 
I really one cannot understand Miss Charles without understanding her father, J.B. Charles. So I'd be happy to talk to you about the book, about what I learned about Eugenia Charles, and the amazing leadership of her father, who was a self-government advocate. He advocated for Dominicans to break out of the shackles of Crown Colony rule, where the governor was the sole arbiter of uh, affairs, so Dominicans could elect their own representatives. Together with Cecil Rawl, he agitated for self-government under the slogan, No Taxation Without Representation. He was a Pan-Africanist. He attended the independence of Ghana and Nigeria. As you may know, Ghana was the first country in Africa to be declared independent of colonial rule, British colonial rule in 57, I, I think. Are we talking about J.B. Charles? J.B. Charles, the father. Yeah. Miss Charles, his father. Miss Charles, his father, worked alongside and corresponded with George James Christian, who was my granduncle, who had been an organizer of the 1900 Pan-African Conference in London, Voice and Henry Sylvester Williams, another Trinidadian attorney. And he actually brought Gavi to Dominica in 1929, when Miss Charles would have been 10 years old. Miss Charles, as you know, was born on May 19th, 1919. So she would have been 95 years next week, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday. Tomorrow, well, that's the purpose of the show tonight. <laughs> well, that's that's right. I'm a little. That's right. Fourteenth. Tomorrow's the fifteenth. She was born on May fifteenth, nineteen nineteen. That's correct. What am I saying? So she would be ninety five years. She'd be ninety five years tomorrow. And uh, you know, it's an honor, therefore, for us to take some time and understand that the development process is not simply about a road or a building or a stadium, but the development process really can only take a sustainable form when a nation is assured that it has a good grasp of its heritage and is proud of its heritage and knows its heritage and respects its heritage and respects those leaders who have, in fact, been able to uh, craft that heritage. Uh, you know, Sir Winston Churchill, he was a conservative, but during World War II, Winston Churchill rallied the British people to fight German aggression and fascism and led them through the war. At the end of the war, he was taken out of office, but he played his part. Likewise, Miss Charles, after we'd been laid low by Hurricane David and the instability following upon the overthrow of Patrick John and his attempt to invade Dominica with the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party, and the fighting in the hills between the police force and the dreads led by one Leroy Iken, also known as Pocosion, who had kidnapped the father of Lennox Honeychurch, or esteemed local historian. We were at war with ourselves. We had done uh, a poor job of ruling our affairs, and so when the election came in 1980, I was on the other side. I thought we alternative, but the Dominican people decided to elect Eugenia Charles, and we respected their decision, and we worked where we could. Certainly, myself on this side in the United States contributed whatever I could to the development process. Before, you, before, to Nora. Yes. before we go too deep into, and we're going to go there, definitely. As um, in the book, you did that interview with Miss Charles in your house as a guest. Um, and therefore... I think that is, is an atmosphere where not necessarily her guard, would, that. her guard would have been down, 
because she was always forthright. So I don't know if she was necessarily guarded. But um, what I wanted you to touch on a little bit was Miss Charles, the person, her personality. What impression did you come away with after having spent some time in her presence and conversing with her as a person? Miss Charles was, I think, her father's daughter. Her father was a self-made man. He was not a white British planter. He was a son, and he was a grandson of slaves and uh, someone of color who had, by dint of thrift, sense of discipline and industry, had risen up in the world of agriculture and acquired lands and acquired property and started the first bank we know of by a black person in the Caribbean. In 1941, in the midst of World War II. So her father was a very strong figure. Her mother was a very strong woman who was also a shopkeeper and a baker. Her father drove them to excellence and insisted they all read the book by the great African-American educator, Booker T. Washington, titled Up from Slavery. They were driven relentlessly to study Booker T. Washington. And interestingly, the year that she was born, her oldest brother, Rennie, who was a godfather, she told me, was taken by boat to New York City with his father, J.B. Charles, and by train to Alabama to place him under the tutelage of the highly regarded agriculture scientist and African-American, Dr. George Washington Carver. And every year... J.B. insisted that Rennie send the books home from the prior semester so that the children at home would read the, or could read the book. And um, that's an amazing thing. So Eugenia Charles had that self-confidence, that discipline, that assertiveness that she'd learned from her father and her mother. Uh, parents who uh, believed in themselves, who were proud. She reminded me that her father was proud to be African. And you must understand, for Michelle to say that to me was quite radical because when we came up in the 70s, in the time of the African Liberation Day marches, when Ruthie Douglas was arrested in Canada over the Sir George William University uprising, we thought, we thought that we were the original promoters of black consciousness and black power. But we were abysmally ignorant. We did not know how ignorant we were that way back then, in the 1900s, there was a strong Gavi movement in Dominica, and J.B. Charles had put his money behind it. In fact, his key man was J. Ralph Kazemi, the eminent journalist, poet, and author, whose name is in the archives of the Schomburg Institute at the New York Public Library, whose name is, in the, is, in the, is written in, in golden letters. When you talk of the Harlem Renaissance, you hear of the Dominican Giraf Kazemi because he was the correspondent in Dominica for the Negro World, which was the UNIA newspaper. And he was J.B. Charles's main man. And that's when Eugenia Charles started to come up in politics, was also very strong. But, we, I, but I didn't understand the relationship with Gaviism and black pride and, and, and self-government politics until I interviewed her in 96. It's, that is when it all came together. No, definitely. I mean, I grew up in Dominica as well. And, you know, we, 
we grew up with the impression that J.B. Charles and Miss Charles were part of the bourgeoisie. Yes. Uh, you know, um, you know, just enjoying um, privilege because stuff was handed down to them because they were they were lighter or mulattoes or whatever yeah. you want to call it. And um, that is why your book, Mamo, the the life and times of Damien Charles is is important because it's. I think that is a very little known truth. Sometimes, you know? uh, Tony, you you are a little uh, the 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 line goes a little off. But I I believe what you were saying. If I can uh, re recite what it is you said that when we grew up, we thought because they were of lighter complexion and because they had land. They automatically were bad because we were part of the bourgeoisie. And, exactly. you know, that is a yeah. sort of miseducation we also sometimes uh, had inflicted on us or we, in fact, sometimes engaged in self-inflicted. We do not do enough. Let me give you a good example, if you can, the trend of thought. The Dominica Botanic Gardens were set, up by the, were set up by the British in the 1800s, 1900s, like they did in many of the islands. That was their way of bringing... Fruit, fruit, fruit bearing and other trees from other parts of the empire to see what would work in Dominic and what wouldn't work. And they were very meticulous in that process. And there was an agriculture center at the back where they would, would craft and uh, splice and graft and do other things with plants to get optimal output from different or fruit bearing trees, right? right? Mm -hmm. How often have you seen children going into the botanic garden uh, with your exercise books to learn how to graft a mango tree, to learn about the origin of those trees and how the gardens was constructed, and to learn of the role the gardens played in our food security effort. So we are in a country we've not taken ownership of. Even if we say we are 35 years independent, we're taking psychological ownership of the land upon which we stand. We're still almost like, you know, uh, rudderless and listless and distracted and have not grasped that we need to talk to each other. Our old folks, our senior citizens, we need to sit down and interview them, find out about how they grew up, the vicissitudes they had to endure, the time when there was no elected representatives in parliament, when they used to have to take farine and make bread, and when the war came and the German marines cut off the supplies of oil and other consumables and they had to make do with local stuff. We need to record those things because our society can only advance when we have a clear sense of who it is we were, because it's by knowing who it is we were, we can determine where it is we're going. And that is what this book allowed me to do, for me as a person, but for an entire nation. Well, and certainly the, the chronicling of that interview with Miss Charles fits right in there in terms of preservation of, of our, our heritage. But let's, 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 let's move on a little bit and talk about Miss Charles um, when she came to power in 1980. There was, there was much turmoil uh, in Dominica. And she had to be very strong. I just played a clip from an interview that she did, and she said um, she had to be a fighter because she, Dominica had just suffered two hurricanes, Hurricane Labor Party and Hurricane David. And, and so there was, she had no choice but to be really tough and to be a fighter. Uh, so yeah. let's talk about that, 
that fighting spirit that Miss Chaz and the pride of which went out and represented Dominica. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess she kind of characterized it as Labour Party so she could maybe make it simple. But it really wasn't the Labour Party, you know. It was Patrick John. And I put Patrick just at the head of that because the Labour Party was made up of people like Michael Douglas, who had been fired by Patrick John, Ferdinand Parillon, who had been fired by Patrick John, and other people like my parents who supported the Labour Party but were dismayed that the party had lost its moorings when Patrick John began to ally himself with South Africa and mercenaries, white racist mercenaries. And so when in 1978 we became independent, we all had great hopes. We hoped we would proceed along a path of progressive development and social justice. The red in the flag designed by Orlin Bully stands for socialism because Patrick John said he was a socialist. But it was nothing of the sort, because the, the soonest we became independent, independent rather, in 79, early 79, January, February, as in 6A, the sixth form, as head boy, he brought a Texan, Don Pearson, to Dominica. We met him at the grammar school where he spoke with us. I remember Mikey Pascal and others being in the room. And seeded about 45 square miles of the north, the most fertile area of the country, to this Texas Freeport Authority, where they would have autonomy, meaning that you would have to have a pass. A Dominican going to that Freeport would have to have a pass. Dominican law would not apply. It would basically be a fiefdom run by a total power. And so we protested that, and we shut that down. Then he tried to uh, shut down the free press and muzzle uh, the opinions that were being uh, aired in the Roseau-based in the, in the New Chronicle, as well as cramp the style of the trade union movement led by people like Louis Benoit of the Workers and Allied, Waterfront and Allied Workers Union, WAU, the Dominican Amalgamated Workers Union, DAU, led by Anthony Joseph, and the Civil Servant, Civil Service Association at that time led by Charles Sabrin. Some of those people were anti-government, they were anti-Labour Party. That is to be sure the case. However, Patrick John made a catastrophic mistake when he tried to pass two anti-democratic pieces of legislation on May 29th, 1979. And when he did that, I was there with many hundreds and thousands of Dominicans and students, and they said, no, the law cannot pass because we are a democracy and we must have a free press. And people who trade unions must be free to organize and to strike to protect their benefits and to seek their benefits. And when on the morning of May 29th we gathered, Eugenia Charles was upstairs in Parliament, Patrick John was up there in Parliament, Michael Douglas was there asking for the bill to be uh, rescinded, uh, the uh, defense force came on the scene and, and sought to clear the demonstrators from the building. We were, we were gathered to prevent the parliamentarians from going in. They would not have a quorum. And when we, we refused to move, the riot squad came in and opened fire. Opened fire on unarmed demonstrators on Kennedy Avenue and Hillsborough Street and on Bath Road. Wounded 12 Dominicans. And Philip Timothy was shot dead on that day. People like Messiah Dover, who was here in Washington, and Eddie Gregoire, who was here in Washington, were also shot on that day and hospitalized. Emmanuel, Emmanuel Amor, a little boy in the street, was shot for the back of the head. The bullet went through his entire head and came out of the tip of his nose. And so miraculously, he survived. I mean, I couldn't understand that. I knew the boy very well. I would meet him on my way to school. He was a younger boy than me. 
I was at the time, I just turned 18. I was 18 in months. And so I saw, as a former cadet, Defense Force members who I had camped with as a cadet open fire on their own people, led by uh, a renegade officer by the name of, of um, uh, from the Maho there, um, Malcolm Reed. Very, very, very uh, lawless gentleman so, so posing as a captain. Yes. So that set the stage for for the environment that she came in, and I guess that that would have that would have informed or, or, or molded her her stance and her approach. Now we were expecting um, Alvin Thomas to call in because he he was um, after Charles Savarin, um he was the general secretary of the Civil Service Association, and I wanted him to call in to give us a perspective of how. Or how it was to be on the opposite side of the table negotiating with Miss Charles for for civil servants and for benefits. So he might be calling any minute now. Um, but we can continue talking about Miss um, Charles. Let us talk about her when after the invasion of Grenada, when she really came onto the world stage and started showing her leadership, and people started taking notice of this really strong um, leader in the Caribbean. Well, I, let me just say the May 29th event uh, was tragic. Uh, the Labour Party uh, members eventually tossed out Patrick John. Uh, there was an interim government led by O.J. Serafin. There was an election the Freedom Party won because people wanted stability. The Green Energy Revolution had taken place that year, 79, March 13th. We supported the Green Energy Revolution. Those of my generation saw Maurice Bishop as a great revolutionary hero, and he was someone who we thought represented the best in Caribbean vision for the future. But there were several things that happened that on reflection showed that that uh, edifice of, of what we thought was revolutionary rectitude had feet of clay. And that was his abysmal failure to maintain a rule of law regime. And what do I mean by rule of law regime? He claimed that, that Gary was going to kill them, and so they had to take power. But once they seized power, he basically abandoned Parliament. Parliament was shut down, and habeas corpus was pretty much abandoned, and anybody could be arrested if they were thought to be a counter-revolutionary. And so when on the... Uh, First, on the 15th of October, he was arrested by his, by his adversaries within the Grenada Revolutionary Government cabinet and, arrest, and, and placed in his home with his girlfriend, Jacqueline Kraft, and tied on your bed. There was no judge to whom any lawyer could appeal to ask for bail because he had just been arrested without any recourse to any charge. He had been dished out that which he had dished out to others. And I'm saying this is someone who supported the Grenada Revolution. And we thought it was a good thing. But on reflection, we realized if we're going to make change, we have to make sure we maintain certain facets of democratic living. For instance, due process of law. If someone has committed a crime because they violated some statute, they have a right to a lawyer. They have a right to bail. They have a right to a hearing before an impartial tribunal or judge. They have a right to trial by jury. 
and only upon conviction can they then be imprisoned or otherwise punished. And even when they're convicted, they have a right to appeal and have that appeal be heard by an impartial tribunal. And that they have a right to testify in their defense and have witnesses be called in their defense. So these are the kinds of things that the Grenada Revolution abandoned to its great disservice. Because at the end of the day, when Bishop was arrested, he did not have the underpinnings of that process, that due process rule of law system to protect himself. And that's where Eugenia Charles and the OECS, under her leadership, was compelled to step in. And of course, they sought the assistance of the United States. It was sad that they had to do that. But frankly, Grenada had a better equipped military force than maybe any other military force in the OECS, or maybe the English-speaking Caribbean period. They had armored cars, they had anti-aircraft artillery, they had rocket launchers, they had things that uh, the revolution from Cuba and the Soviet Union had provided them because they wanted to defend themselves against mercenaries, but instead, and regrettably so, they turned their arms against the people. According to Bishop, before he was killed, oh my God, they have opened fire on the masses. So there, at his last moment, he realized his error, but it was too late. And what Eugenia Charles on reflection had to do, because she was asked to do it. It was the popular sentiment in the OECS. And, you know, sometimes people think the United States just did this. The United States had its own motive for invading Grenada. It was the Cold War. They were fighting the Soviet Union. They were fighting Cuba by different means. And they saw that as one way to get back at the Soviet Union and Cuba for the defeat in Vietnam. But separate from what the U.S. wanted to do and what its whole motive may have been, as OECS citizens, as West Indians, we also had an interest in making sure that our islands would not succumb to lawlessness of the kind that we saw on March 19, 1983, when people were slaughtered in St. George's by the so-called People's Revolutionary Army. Perhaps yeah, I'll be on the line, and I wanted to... Um I wanted to let me let me just get him. Hold, hold. Okay. Uh -huh. Alvin, you there? Hey, Tony, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm fine. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for calling in. Um, I, I'm watching the clock, and um, this this topic on Miss Charles is she achieved so much and did so much that we could be talking about her for for two hours easily. Um, I also have Mr. Gabriel Christian um on the line. Um, Alvin. Okay. Um, hi, Gabriel. Hi, Alvin. How are you, my brother? Good, man. How are you doing? Good to hear your voice, sir. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember you back in those days, Alvin. <laughs> oh, man, those were those days, boy. Good old days, I would say. <laughs> well, you know, we did our best, you see, so we could at least, we could at least have a country. Had we not acted, then I don't think we'd have a country. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, what is and, and I agree entirely with the point you made earlier that knowing the history will determine how we move forward. Definitely. Absolutely. Now, Alvin, one of the things, um, Gabriel has given us a flavor of Miss Charles and her, the perspective that she had, which was probably a little more advanced than those, those of us at the time who had just a limited, what we thought was a radical view. Now, your interaction with Miss Charles was a little bit post that era, I would imagine, when she was already prime minister, and you were, you had to negotiate on behalf of civil servants. So I wanted you to 
to to call in um to give us a little flavor of what it was like to to sit in that I want to say adversarial role, but but as 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 a negotiator with Miss Charles on the other end of the table, because we all have this impression that she was really tough and really strong. Um, and Gabriel also gave us the, the the idea that she had that softer side to her as well. So, what was your yeah. take on her personality as somebody that you you were trying to get a fair deal out of her for the civil servants in a, in a time of economic um, difficulty? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think, though, that, um, and, and Gabriel is right, there was that softer side of, of Ms. Charles. But I think overall, from what I knew of her and my interaction, uh, she had, in all respect, the best interests of Dominica at heart. Um, unlike what we currently and some of the other Caribbean islands where a person is in that office and is primarily con their own personal um, whatever they can they can uh, derive personally for their own personal benefit. Of course she was tough. She was a tough negotiator. That is um, that was that was Miss Charles by nature. So in other words you're not going to go into a meeting with Miss Charles unprepared. Um, but as you talk about the whole question of negotiation, one of the key elements in negotiations is the question of what you call good faith. If, if you have a negotiation where neither party, whether it's on the employer side or the union side, uh, uh, do not enter that discussion with some element of good faith, to, yes, to negotiate tough to get what you want for your constituent. But if there is not that element of good faith, then I think that can have a serious effect, a negative one that is on the negotiation. And what I found was that in in discussing and negotiating with, with Ms. Charles, there was at all times that element of good faith. She was tough. She would tell you straight off, you know, we're going to negotiate whether it's a salary matter or, or non-salary matter. She will take that top line and tell you, oh, all right, you know, I, 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 I don't think you guys can get that, or, or, or why, why, why you guys want to get that, or I'm not going to give that. And, um, and as I said, you have to be prepared. And I'll say to her, no, PM, no, I, I don't agree with you. No, I, I don't agree with me. I say, exactly, I don't agree with you. And this is why I don't agree with you. And we'd have those tough negotiations. And at the end of the day, because you had that element of good faith at the bargaining table, we could have arrived at something. Something whereby um, a give and take, if you might say, I would get as much of what I'm looking for for my members, and she in turn, representing the government, would be able to get or, 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 or seek what she is getting or want on behalf of the government. So, Gabriel, Gabriel do, you, do you have that same sense of, of fairness? And, what, and Alvin made a strong point. He said, she always seemed to have the the well being of Dominica at the center of, of her of her actions. Well, <clears throat> I, I agree with Alvin on that point and I'll I'll use uh, uh, a particular series of, 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 of meetings to illustrate that. So when ministers come to Dominica when Dominican ministers come to Washington or the Prime Minister, they they do what is called per diem. Alvin, you know what that is? That is correct, yes. Okay, tell, tell you listening audience what PDM means. 
So DM is basically an out-of-pocket expense just to cover your expenses. So that would cover your hotel accommodation, your stay at the hotel, your meals, lunch, breakfast, dinner, and any other incidentals like, say, transportation, taxi to take you to and from your meetings or anything of that nature. That's it. Good. And, um, and also the government had where they would give you um, a, little, a little extra pocket to have to entertain somebody or something like that. Right. And we, without, without tripping you, Eugenia would never take that per diem. Well, well, I, I don't know how comes I haven't got into my head to bring that stuff out. That time. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the point I was going to make. I would be with Eugenia Charles at the home of Dr. Uh, Angela Benjamin. That's uh, correct. A German uh, lady who was the uh, very accomplished lady who was an uh, agriculturally trained person as well. She was a wife of the Dominican, the distinguished Dominican, the first Dominican PhD from UCLA, who was a doctor of agricultural economics, Dr. MacDonald Benjamin. That's son right. went, the son later went to Oxford also and became a PhD in economics, doctor, and, and named like his father, MacDonald, and was the head of the World Bank Division for Latin America. And she would stay at the lady's home just so she wouldn't spend government's money. Yeah, they were the other leader that impressed me in that same vein was Rusie Douglas. Rusie Douglas had absolutely no interest in the material trappings of power. That is true. And that is the way that Eugenia Charles. Frankly, there's one facet of a character that basically uh, allowed me to warm, become warm towards the lady, which was that because I've always thought that uh, it's how one treats the government's treasury or uh, the finesse and the care and the uh, certain the sensitivity to, to a modest means of a developing nation uh, that a minister or head of government ex- uh, exhibits in their conduct that I think really shows their true character. And in that sense, it showed a great sense of, of noble character. That she'd sit that she's very simple. She was a very simple person. And by the way, when you got to know when she was relaxed wrong, you should tell all kinds of interesting jokes. You that know? is true. So, yeah, she, I, so she, had, she had this duality, you know, she had this tough exterior in public and so on, but when you got to know the lady and so on, by Miss Jasmine, there some serious jokes and so on. And oh, yeah, for oh, yeah. And what I, I did, uh, just to, uh, Alvin, if I could conclude, sure. some parts of the interview, actually, I have placed online on YouTube, so Dominicans okay. can have little snippets of that interview at my dinner table, and, and you can see how relaxed she was and, and some of the jokes that she told. Go ahead, Alvin. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I recall sometimes as a general secretary, I'll go to her residence to um, to discuss certain matters. Um, if she's too busy, I wrote to them, okay, I'll come up to my residence and we can discuss whatever is going on. And as you say, very relaxed, she would sit there and she would have a bowl of cane, sugar cane. Every night, Eugenia used to chew on sugar cane. <laughs> she would have the sugar cane cut up. Um, old Mr. Cyril Lewis who died, Gregory Lewis' father. Yeah. A very good friend of hers who's always a family friend would get that sugar cane, cut it up in pieces, and while I'm speaking with um, the Prime Minister, Virginia have a bowl of sugar cane chewing on her sugar cane. I'll give you another instance when um, the question of, you know, fairness and all of that. I recall when, when the Prime Minister took office, there was a very senior, senior, top civil servant, I will refrain from calling the name, who wasn't really a sympathizer of the Freedom Party or supporter. And when she became prime minister, she got a lot of flack from her supposedly. But why should you keep this particular person in that office? This is a critical office. This is a big office. And you have this person who wasn't 
Virginia said to them, I'm not into this. If, if this individual can perform and do his work, he's supposed to remain in the position. Until he shows otherwise, I will not be moving this person. This particular person serves her as a top chief first advisor for a very long time until she left office. Yeah, so this is beautiful because we we're getting to see an intimate side of Miss Charles that you that that we don't get anywhere else. You know, everybody has this Iron Lady story and and you know, but but I have two guests on this weekend interview on TDNRadio.net who has sat at a dinner table with Miss Charles in her residence at Gable's residence, and they've seen her and and. Therefore, we can get a true picture of of what Miss Charles was uh, always dignified, but also being able to relax. And and, the, and what you're hearing is is her fairness and her, her constant forthrightness. So this is this is extremely um, beautiful. I I certainly um, appreciate having both of you gentlemen on there. And um, I see it's, it's 9 o'clock, but my producer usually indulges me for an extra 10 minutes. So I'm going to just... Um, let, me, let, me, let me invite the listeners, uh, those who may want to... If there's anybody out there who may want to call in and join the conversation um, quickly, you, you can do that in the next few minutes. But while we're waiting to see if anybody wants to call in, and the number that you can call in at is 202-525-7231. 202-525-7231. And, and, and I'll ask both of you gentlemen to just wrap up. Um, I'm just going to leave it open. Give us in, in a minute or two a, a summary of your, of your sense of Miss Charles as a person, as a leader, as a woman as a Caribbean icon, a world icon. So just, um, why don't you go first? Well, uh, I, will, I will say something that needs to be said that amazed me, and I, I think it's the basis, it should be the basis for a movie. Eugenia during the war was stranded in Trinidad, and she was trying to get a flight back to Dominica, and not for the hell of, of, of it could she get through. So she went through the travel or the airline ticket office, and the woman told her there, well, you know, this is Trinidad, you know, you have to pay a little something under the table if you want to get out of here. So Eugenia just, she just brushed past the woman and said, look, she has no extra money to pay any bribes. Give her a damn ticket now and let her go. And she got a ticket and she flew out. And when she flew out, she had to um, take the plane to Antigua. Dominica didn't have an airport then, but the U.S. had a base in Antigua. And she had to take a boat from Antigua to Dominica. So I told Michelle, well, what kind of boat? She said, Christian, a canoe. I said, what do you mean? You, you, dry, you, 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 you took a canoe from Antigua to Dominica? She said, yes, that's how we... Because the boat, she said, the boat was maybe about 14 feet, and my, my head on one side and my foot on the other side, and it's only about 10 inches from the gunwales, that is the edge of the boat, to the water. And that's how I she said, Dominica. From Antigua. And then she gets Portsmouth and she took a bath at the Johnson residence. I said, How was Portsmouth in those days? Did they have running water? She said, Yes, maybe. I said, Did they have electricity? She said, I'm not sure. Portsmouth was always Portsmouth. Something like that. And she laughed. So, <laughs> so, that is Grayson. No, no, we, have Grayson we have Grayson on the line. Grayson, um, 
Welcome. But before you do that, can you turn on? Welcome. Thank you very much, Tony. Listen, I just want to make a short contribution to to Mary's Eugenia's um, leadership in Dominica. Ahead, and I just want to speak very briefly about her role in the agriculture sector during her, her leadership. And she made a, con in my view, she fought very hard for agriculture and in particular the banana farmers. And after Hurricane David and when she came into office, she managed to get some money from the CDB to rehabilitate the banana industry. Then following that sometime around 1985 or thereabouts, she, she was able to get further assistance from the British Development Division in Barbados to continue resuscitating the banana industry. Uh, she got some aid from the USAID and the banana industry picked in her reign in 1989 when we had the biggest export, which was 73,000 tons of bananas, which yielded in excess of $100 million. So I think that somebody could say that Eugenia did her part to put the banana industry on its feet after Hurricane David. And she was also able to get money from the British development to do agricultural diversification because all of these mangoes, avocados, and all these other sundry cups besides bananas, all of these things started under her leadership. So that is where I think that um, she made her contribution. Certainly. And during her reign, she, ha she had a very good relationship with Mitchell in St. Vincent, Crampton in Dominica, and herself. And they fought very, very feverishly for the banana industry uh, during her reign. Certainly, Grace. Now, we, we thank you so much for calling. Thank we you can, very much can, for saying that. We can hear all the night and, noises uh, in the background well in, in Dominica. Um, yes. Really, really. Um, but thank you so much. And I think um, the example that Grayson just gave um, speaks to Miss Charles' pragmatism and, and, and her ability to identify where the, she needs to direct her energies and to put those energies there and to get and to get results. So, so Grayson, thank you very much for, for bringing that up. And Gable, uh, of course, we talked the story that you just gave, and, and before we um, we had the technicalities with the phone, you were saying that um, maybe this could become part of the scene of a movie. Um, but no, I am sure um, Miss Charles definitely, if her, her strength of character would have left that type of impression on, on many persons. Alvin, um, let me let me turn to you and 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 give you the chance to um, to close out your your remarks as well on Miss Charles. Yes, well, thanks, Tony, and um, thanks, listeners, for um, listening to the program. Um, I I I for one chair. The, um, the opportunity that I had to interact with, um, um, with PM Charles, Prime Minister Charles, um, Eugenia. Um, as I said earlier, um, I, in, in, in speaking and meeting with her to discuss any issues that it affects uh, our members, I always get a sense that it was one that was being dealt with um, above board. Um, that element of good faith was there. We would have some strong, different point of view. She would have some strong position. Um, but I think that was healthy for the dialogue that took place. Um, it's always better going into a discussion like that. So I'm, in fact, you know, privileged and, and, and pleased to have had that opportunity. I think one other thing I might add is that you may recall that um, um, Ms. Charles had injured, had, had broken her leg in Taiwan on some mission. She was out on government business in Brooklyn. 
kissed me and I broke broken her ankle or somewhere there. But when she came back to Dominica, uh, there was all this all this issue going on as to how she's gonna function and all of that. And she moved the Prime Minister's office to her residence because that at the time facilitated her being able to discharge the function better. And I must say that too demonstrate the the, 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 the sincerity and, and what this woman had and, and felt for Dominica. That even in situation like that, in crisis situation like that, she didn't felt well. It was a need for her to be on leave or not doing or feeling capable or anything like that. And even then, she was able to perform. I recall visiting her at a residence in Brooklyn, casting her leg and discussing issues with her. So I think she was, in fact, a solid figure, uh, someone who has contributed immensely. Not just to Dominica politics, but politics in the region, and I may even add the entire world. Um, so again, I was privileged, and um, I think many other persons who had that opportunity, like Gabo himself, who had the opportunity to speak and speak with her, can attest to that. Well, certainly, Alvin, and, and we thank you so much for sharing the experience with us. And um, tomorrow will have been her 95th birthday, and maybe persons who were familiar with her can you can probably, probably now is the time to start a movement so we could mark her 100th birthday with some big celebration and something to commemorate her life and her contribution. But Alvin, thank you so much for sharing with us um, tonight on this weekend interview. You're welcome. Thank you very much, um, Gabriel, Tony. Uh, Gabriel, thank before you, you go, before you're you welcome. go, let's remind, let's remind listeners how they can get your book, the book Mama, yeah. The Life and Times of the Mary Virginia Charles. Well, unfortunately, I can't sit in the front line because front line has gone on, but uh, Jay's is there, and Jay's is uh, doing a good job, and we ask all Dominicans on Dominica to go to Jay's, and if you're in the diaspora, you can go online at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Or Barnes & Noble. And it's printed by Poncasse Press, right? Yes, it's Poncasse Press, so you can go online and look at what we have to offer at www.poncassepress.com. That's P-O-N-T-C-A-S-S-E, press.com. Uh, the works that Irvin and I have done are on there, and uh, Mamo is, of course, available. And you'll find it very delightful. The way it's written, it's almost like a deposition. It's question and answer. It's, it's a dame in her own words. No, certainly, and that's a gem. And I, I thank you so much. I know, I know that you're, very, you, you're busy at this time, but um, I really wanted to, to do a show on Miss Charles that had a, a slightly different flavor, you know, and to, and to really open open up and let people see inside of Miss Charles, so to speak. And, and doing that, I thought persons who were intimately involved with her and knew her at that level would do a good job. And, and I think you did excellent in sharing your experiences and to putting it into perspective for us, the, the, the environment she came into power, the, the different dynamics that were at work when she came in and was able to achieve. So I thank you so much for, for sharing with us. And... Um, Definitely, you, you know you always have an open invitation to come to this week in interview. Uh, Tony, I just want to say before you close, I just realized that she will be our first head of government uh, since universal adult suffrage to um, get to a, 100 because she was born in 1919, so 2019. Libla was born in 1922. Uh, Mr. Barron is, is a little ways away from... 100 himself, and he was the first chief minister. So she will really be the first to hit 100. And I think, as you said, it'll be a good time to start thinking about how we can meaningfully commemorate that uh, milestone. Well, certainly, certainly. Oh, good idea, good idea. Yeah. Good idea. 
Thank you so much, my uh, my brother and uh, my brothers All right, actually. And, um, a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Bless, God bless you, Tony. God bless you, uh, Alvin. And Alvin, of course, thank, you know. Thank you, uh, man. You take care. All the best. Wonderful. Bye-bye. All right. Well, listeners, as usual, um, this week in interview really unfolds. And, 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 and I will tell you that this is what I really like about the show. I, I try to keep it free-flowing and in free form. Um, and, and that allows the, our guests the freedom. And, and, and because of that, we, we always uncover and discover these gems. Uh, and, uh, and tonight was no exception. So I thank you, and this has been this week in interview for May fourteenth, two thousand. May fourteenth, two thousand and fourteen, and as we mark the birthday, the ninety-fifth birthday of Dame Mary Eugenia Charles, I want to say thank you so much to you all listeners who listen every week. I want to say thank you to Engineer Sam, uh, producer and engineer, and um, we in next week we will not have a This Week in Interview program because um, we are scheduled to to carry live um, the, the, the United Workers Party is continuing on their tour and they will be in Antigua on May 17th, St. Thomas on the 18th, St. Croix on the 19th, Tortola on the 20th and St. Martin on the 21st. So on the 21st, which is next week, Wednesday, um, we have been co-opted to, to provide the link so that the, the addresses can be carried live. So there will be no This Week in Interview next week. But please tune in. It will be pretty interesting um, to, to hear the happenings um, of, of those discussions as the, the United Workers Party reaches out to the diaspora and try to get um, their feel and their feedback um, of, of what they think Dominica needs at this time. So once again, I want to thank you for being with us. We will be back on the 20th. Um, we're hoping that we will have a guest from the Coalition of Caribbean Americans um, because it will be a week before the um, Econ Caribbean Economic Summit in um, Newark, New Jersey. So stay tuned, and I thank you for, for being um with us for for this week in interview. I want to close out with a little bit of, of the rest of the clip from Miss Charles um, that I started playing earlier. Quite frankly. But I think it's a little difficult when they say they can't pay more than 2%, is it, civil servants, that they should think of increasing their salaries at the time. I think that is where I take issue with them. That if, if you haven't got the money, you haven't got the money for yourself either, you know. What about legislation? For example, at the moment, the sexual offences... Yeah, well, we, 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 we had up the age, too, you know, they're going up for the, for the, they're going and they're upping it, or lowering it, as you can say. But we had done that once, and now they're going... But what I want to know is that are they going to prosecute people who break that law, regardless of who they are and what they are in the society? Are they going to do that? That is important thing. implementation. Well, but I want to ask you very quickly, why can't you just take it as a, you retire, have the quiet life and forget about politics and everything? Well, I finished about politics, but I cannot live and see things being done wrong, not comment on it. I mean, after all, I'm a taxpayer, so I have to comment on it. We'll live it at that. Then you your chance, our very first guest on Marpin's new program, On the Fire. <laughs> 
tremendous, tremendous. Um, definitely, this weekend interview. Um, good night.